Hey, Midgardians, I'm Clay. And I'm Joe. Welcome to that Midgard show. This is a podcast where we talk about the Midgard campaign setting published by our friends at Cobalt Press. Yep. And in this episode, we continue our series on the locations and lore found in the Holy Robes of Sister Adeline chapter of uh, Empire of Ghouls. So in this chapter where your players start to do a great deal of traveling around Midgard. Yeah, this chapter again starts your players in Zobek, and then they move up to Greisel, then up to uh, Karasin in the Grand Duchy of Dorneg, which is located just over the border of the former Electoral Kingdom of Cracovia. Uh, from there, they'll uh, head to the city of Jost in the Wolfmark, and finally they'll pass through various locations of the Greater Duchy of Morgu uh, to their final destination in Jarlsberg. Along the way, the PCs will get to use a shadow road as part of their travels, which introduces a whole new level to this adventure. Now, because there's so much to unpack in this chapter, our discussion will take place over a few episodes uh, in our ongoing Empire of the Ghouls series. We'll do our best to avoid spoilers by focusing on lore, locations, and notable PCs. But if we feel we're treading into spoiler land, uh, we'll let you know. Absolutely. So... A uh, lot to unpack, like you said, and uh, a, a side note too, uh, because your players will be traveling the Shadow Roads, there's been some great blog posts recently on the Cobalt Press blog on uh, the Shadow Roads and on the ley lines that's worth taking a look at that can kind of aid you with some of this. But this adventure in the campaign begins when the PCs receive a summons to the Temple of Rava from the Clockwork Oracle, who gives them a quest to track down the Holy Robes of Sister Adeline. Uh, in the former uh, electoral kingdom of Krakowa. So we talked about uh, the Zobex uh, Temple of Rava in episode 11. We won't get into that in this episode, but if you haven't listened to it, go back and take a listen to that episode. Some background on the adventure hook. Adelind, who is uh, now revered as a saint, was actually a paladin of Sip, who died a martyr fighting the undead of Morgau at Yerosburg, which is a castle that's devoted to Sif's Order of the Spear. Her holy robes, though, are now thought to be a vital weapon in the battle to stop the evil plots of the ghouls that are, you know, we're going to see later in this adventure. So uh, the story says that Sif actually collected Adeline's spirit from the battlefield where she fell. And then uh, now the saint answers the prayers of women and shield maidens who swear a righteous vengeance against the Darakul. And also, obviously, they're vampire masters, right? So uh, she actually has her own symbols. Her symbol is the snowdrop, a flower that kind of blooms even in frost and snow. Uh, Sif herself is the goddess of family and marriage and is the gold-keeping, arrow-shooting, ale-brewing wife of Thor, yeah. uh, the equal of any man better and better than most. So she's she's a badass. <laughs> she's, uh, she's the good mother and friend of the faithful. Uh, so yeah, Sif's a, a fairly important goddess the north and the crossroad region, you know, uh, and she wears a lot of different masks. So both married and unmarried women comprise most of Sif's followers through uh, archers, farmers, gold seeking dwarves, all maintaining varying degrees of fondness for her. So uh, she's got you know, a, a large following base. Uh, all female warriors give Sif her due as a leader of the Valkyrie and Shield Maidens. Uh, she's also worshipped in Pernala uh, as sister of the Duchess. Uh, so she's not just in the Marvel movies. <laughs> um, right? Uh, right? So, yeah. 
So Sif uh, uh, demands that all of her followers are fierce and that they be faithful and that they're expected to fight for what they believe in. So she's very kind of, you get, you get the righteous goddess kind of uh, feel from her, right? Followers are also expected to learn the bow and axe and spear as a warrior or raise children to be strong and true and do either or both with your whole heart. Uh, most importantly, followers are expected to strike down evil and practice uh, their own excellence without ever insulting another skill. So, you know, I, I, I like Sif for a goddess. My, I tried to kind of get my wife's cleric to go that route. She actually ended up going with Lada, who may or may not be uh, a mask of uh, Sif, but um, I personally don't think that that's the case. But uh, the quest to find the, the, this relic, the robes, that's kind of the, the hook is we need these robes to, to fight the undead. Yeah. So that kind of takes us right out of Zobak into other places. Yeah, yeah. So the players will head north uh, from Zobek, uh to get to their uh, first destination, which is the Black Canton of Grisel. Now, the PCs have to head up on the mountain road. And the hard part of that road starts as they held up the uh, Silbertal past the ruins and over the Gunnox Pass. And it's at that point where the road forks. You know, it, it'll fork to take uh, uh, folks uh, further west or it'll head uh, straight north uh, into uh, Dornig and Wolfmark. And this mountain pass closes each fall. You know, it's, it's, it's high mountains. Very high mountains. These these aren't your typical hills. And they close each fall and reopen in the spring uh, when the waterfalls uh, start to flow and the snow melt uh, begins to, uh, uh, you know, head into the rivers, you know, causing those uh, waterfalls to uh, open up. And also, you know, the winter winds, you know, they will strip the flesh off your bones. And, you know, it's that springtime when they uh, start to subside. Um, right. There are big, big bragging rights for the full, first mule train uh, to make it in either direction, uh, either down from the cantons and into the welcoming arms of the lowlanders or vice versa, yep. you know, heading uh, up the other direction. And, yeah, and um, I kind of get, do you, do you get a, a vibe of like from Lord of the Rings, you know, the, the mountain pass they try to take in the snow? Like if you try to cross this thing in the winter, it would be like, you know, Gandalf and the Hobbits buried neck deep in snow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I that's that's a great that kind of trail. Yeah, yeah it, it it is hard road. Even when the pass is clear, you know, it, it's yep. hard road. Even though the mountain road is steep and cold, uh, there are what's called dwarf holds and other safe places built into the the hills and the mountains. You know, up in the uh, Iron Crags, and these um, facilities are pretty stout, and they're they're enough to spend the night. And warm up, eat some food, uh, pull in your uh, mule train in there to keep uh, keep them all warm and safe as well. But uh, you know, GMs don't make it easy uh, on your uh, PCs because no matter when you travel, where you travel in the, in in anywhere in Midgard, don't expect uh, an easy time of it. And that's you know because. There's always the chance of uh, getting shaken down by brigands or uh, less than ethical groups uh, to proceed. Yep. Now, sometimes, though, uh, a dwarf hold might decide to make a human mule, mule train vanish. And there are stories told, although not within dwarven hearing, because that'll that'll cause a fight right then and there. Uh, but yep. the stories say that, you know, mule trains disappear, all of the. 
uh, the mule skinners and, and things like that go with them. And they disappear into the mountains to mine gold or mithril uh, for their uh, bearded masters. And a lot of times these poor souls never see daylight again. And, and there's a section in, in the uh, yeah. uh, Canton's part of the uh, Midgard where, you know, the doors will come out of the mountains every so often and kind of round up uh, what they call thralls. Thralls are, are, are just a, a better word for slaves. The thralls are, are, are treated really well. You know, they get a say uh, at, the, um, at the things. You know, the, the thing is like the, the big gathering of, of all of the uh, uh, Canton dwarves uh, for kind of... Uh, Think of it as like a big giant legislature and a party, you know, all, all at the same time. Uh, but but according to the lore, the thralls are usually released after 10 years of service. Sometimes they'll stay, you know, in the cantons and other times some of the uh, uh, folks uh, uh, conscripted into uh, mining, you know, will will serve their time and get the hell out of Dodge as uh, quickly yeah. as possible. It, it is at this point the PC's enter the lands of the Black Canton of Greisel. And, and that is at the very northeastern part of the, uh, the Canton borders. In fact, uh, the River Argent and the uh, western, or, yeah, western border of uh, the Greater Duchy of Morgaux is, is, is essentially the border. So it's a kind of little, tiny little piece uh, that is off on the uh, north, northeast. It is at this point where it's a good opportunity for, to uh, start to introducing uh, undead uh, to your PCs because it's so close to the uh, vampire empire. And, and this is a great time to uh, start uh, introducing um, yep. the undead in, the, in those areas. So one thing that I recommend to all GMs is don't hand wave to travel. The travel is 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 the best part uh, in this campaign. And, and what makes this campaign so good is, is that your PCs will have a lot of opportunities to explore, uh, socialize with local denizens, and fight against the more unsavory elements of the areas they travel. So if you're going to commit to running a campaign, set those expectations with your players that this campaign could last a long time, and they should not expect combat every session. And for me, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the best encounters happen during exploration and socialization. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, you know, um, I'm a fan of that in, in any campaign. I mean, sometimes you montage, you know, you need to get to the next location. You'll do a little hand waving. But when you're doing this kind of dangerous travel, right, there's so much potential for cool stuff. Um, think about a rock slide even, right? It doesn't have to be an encounter with monsters. It could be a rock slide. Or maybe there's already been a rock slide. It's... And it's blocking the pass, so you have to clear it. But then you clear it, and it turns out there's a bunch of zombies buried under it that pop out and attack. Like, there's so much cool potential for neat things you can do uh, on the road in a, a place like this. It's a really dangerous area on the border of the Blood Kingdom, the Dwarven Cantons. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know about you, Clay, but it, the one thing I when I first got into Midgard that I noticed was that I felt like the dwarves in, in Midgard, at least the Catan dwarves, are a little shady. Like they're not just good dwarves. They're they're you know, they they take slaves. They they put people in the mines to work. So it's like even your allies could be your enemies in a place like this. And oh, sure. um there there's so much potential. So I, I definitely suggest uh read up, like grab if you don't have the the, the world book, you should have it. Uh, definitely get it. But read up a bit on the Catans and the dwarves. Uh, there's more information in the Midgard uh, uh, Heroes Handbook as well. 
um, because they are a very unique breed of dwarf, and there's a lot that can be done uh, with them, you know, during this this exploration and even socialization part, right? Yeah. Uh, in one of those those uh, huts or you know those those night pl- you know places like there's a dwarf manning it, and you know he seems a little shady, but he's offering you food. Are you gonna eat it? <laughs> Like yeah, maybe he's gonna play with you. Like yeah. just weird stuff. Yeah, I mean these these dwarves. You know, I I see them as the as Klingons. You know, they are. Yes. Oh my yeah. god, that's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. They, they are hard living, hard playing um, individuals. They uh, have a strong sense of honor, a deep devotion to their cantons. Um, yes. and, and, you know, if you need an analog, you know, for, or, or inspiration, you know, definitely the Klingons are, oh, are, are, solid are your, your, your example, you know? Yeah. And, because and, they're and, not, they're not necessarily evil, but they're not exactly good either. Yeah. They, they have a strict code. They're lawful, whatever, right? They're yeah. definitely lawful. Is it good, neutral, or evil? Yeah. But it's lawful, right? They have a strict code. Yeah. And also don't forget that these, uh, you know, this race is, is, is small compared to humans and elves and, uh, uh other races. So, yeah. so if you have a five foot dwarf, you know, that's a super tall dwarf, you know, but most of them are going to be anywhere from three and a half feet to uh, five, five feet tall. And, yep. uh, and they are, they are tough thick. as nails. They are tough as nails. Uh, hit, hit, <laughs> you know, Going, you know, fist to fist with one of those dwarves, you might as well be punching at a a, a rock face or something like that. You know, yeah, the, yeah. these dwarves are tough. They're not as yeah. um, hoity as the uh, Zobek uh, dwarves are. You know, the Zobek, oh, you yeah. know, you know, like like you've mentioned in previous ep- episodes, you know, think of them as like Vulcans, you know, with some emotions, you know, but you yeah. know, they're they're very analog. But the, these guys are, you know, I just as soon put my axe in your head and and uh, and go uh, back to. Uh, uh, the keep to uh, drink some mead, you know, so it's a good day to die. <laughs> it is a good day to die. So, you know, we can't talk about the black Canton without talking about the iron crags in general, and we're not going to yeah. go super deep in the iron crags. We're definitely going to have some episodes about the iron crags themselves uh, because there's 13 of them and, and, and each of them have their own distinct flavor. The, the Cantons, you know, like I said, 13 uh, Cantons, they're all defined by a settlement that has existed for at least a hundred years or more. Uh, they contain both free and cloistered dwarves and encompass all sets of halls. You name it. You know, they're not just mines and and simple shelter, but a, a, a proper dwarven hall, you know, always includes a set of forges or smelters, a brewery, a set of clan homes, and at least one temple or shrine. And the population of the cantons is difficult to know because the dwarves are reluctant uh, to count their numbers, or at least to share those numbers with any anyone outside of their own canton. But, you know, the best guess in the lore says that the cantons hold about 150,000 dwarves and perhaps 25,000 slaves uh, outside Grisel. Here's the list, you know, the 13 ca- uh, cantons, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to do uh, some justice to their names. But a lot of them are very uh, Germanic or uh, Scandinavian uh, type uh, names. So yep. the first is a Barriks. Um, then there's Bundhausen, uh, Greisel, Gunex, Hammerfell, uh, Uralt, Kuborg, Nordsmarched, or, or Nordsmenscht, uh, St. Michau, uh, Temple Forge, Tiano, uh, Versalis, and Winterheim. 
And some of these cantons have three names, you know, one in the common tongue, one in the Southern uh, speech and uh, one in Dwarven speech of the Northlands. So outside the common tongue and what you see in the lore, you can make up uh, all kinds of the names, you know, uh, you can give it kind of an Arabic type name, you know, in the uh, uh, Southern speech or um, up in the, uh, uh, a more a Scandinavian name, you know, if, if you want to uh, come up with uh you know, 13 names, yeah. you know, for, for, for Northlanders, but, uh, super cool. Yeah, you know, sure. analog. I, I also uh, say about the iron crags is, uh, think, think Switzerland, high altitude, uh, settlements, all of them are, uh, have independent cantons as well. And, and I think, you know, that's also a pretty good analog. If you're, if you're looking for some European connection to that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you, you killed it on the names, man. You did way better than I could have done on the names. Yeah, and I thanks. cannot get now I, I cannot get the Klingon analogy out of my head. I feel like each canton's like a Klingon house. Um <laughs> you know, I'm like I'm thinking like, oh yeah, but honestly the Klingons are probably modeled after dwarves, not the other way around. Something. But uh for sure. It's it's such a solid analogy. I'm yeah. loving it. But yeah. uh you know, the the Kattens are all like in you know, like mountainous regions, right? Uh, of the Iron Crags. And there's a lot of different kind of varying altitudes and passes kind of make it make some like more accessible than others. And uh, a few are actually separated uh, from the main cantons by like lowlands ri and rivers that are inhabited by humans. So you might find human settlements in between. Uh, but there are two outliers, which are uh, uh, Wintertime to the north and the, and the dark cat of, of uh, Gristle, which stands across the river Argent near Morgau and uh, the Dorish border. Each of the free cantons is essentially its own nation within its own, you know, its own valleys with its own customs and uh, rules and traditions. Uh, the major cantons are larger and more settled. Uh, their insignia is going to be more widely known outside of the area, uh, while the smaller ones are, you know, equally as distinct, like distinctive, but are uh, like isolated or obscured uh, for reasons of landscape or history or just because they want to be. Right. That's just their preference. Much like the Klingons. Right. The dwarves think of their Catan first, their race or their clan second. The Catan is uh, kind of home. It's hearth, it's family, it's wealth, it's safety. It's really important. Right. This is at the core of their being. Uh, these these traits don't always guarantee like a greater harmony or joy among the other Catan dwarves, like more so than, let's say, another race like humans like they. Certain ones might get along with humans better than another another clan. Uh, it, it it varies, and it should, right? That's how people are. Cattle dwarves are notoriously kind of dour, fractious, very opinionated about pretty much everything. I, I like to, the idea of like role-playing a conversation with a dwarf where you really have to change his mind about something. And even though he knows you're right, he's too stubborn to, to budge, right? So that stubborn dwarf stereotype definitely holds up for these guys. Yeah. Uh, but the Catinal Dwarves, you know, unify, uh, really, like they will unify, but only in the presence of some external threat, right? Which gives their elders and their leaders uh, of the their free companies basically an excuse to go on about the importance of the free Dwarven Catins to the younger generation. And it's funny because, I, you know, I think that's something we kind of sometimes see reflected in the real world, right? Where maybe... Yeah. Uh, uh, people in power might try to give others a common enemy to try to 
unify them against this one cause rather than against them, right? So Mm -hmm. the idea of, I can see like maybe the dwarves almost manufacturing a false enemy or a false sense of of urgency about something in order to try and get uh, all the dwarves together to, to help fight a certain cause. They're, they can be trippy. Yeah. Uh, but the, the Catlin of Gristle is, is actually claimed by both the Grand Duchy of Doring and the Greater Duchy of Morgau. So both of these other regions are like, you know, oh, oh, that's our land. But of course, the dwarves say, screw that, and they don't offer loyalty to either. Uh, it actually kind of, like I said earlier, lies on the eastern bank of the River Argent. But, it, uh, but it's all dwarven land, at least as far as the dwarves are concerned. The people there are among some of the most religious of the Catmull Dwarves, with special emphasis in worship uh, placed on Voland and his son, the solar god of Kros, uh, and uh, uh, Grahava, which is the shield maiden, which is uh, most likely a mask of Sith. Uh, yeah. Also, Wotan and uh, Thorperun. They kind of worship all of those those warrior gods and, and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of paladins there. There's going to be a lot of clerics. Uh, in fact, about one-tenth of the Cat and Dwarves are clerics or paladins or servants of the temple in some fashion. So very big religious kind of order there. Grisal's priests are, are kept pretty busy since its halls stand above the zombie wood of uh, Zawargal, I believe is how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. and uh, within sight of the Temple of the Red Goddess, where the dead are you know, brought to serve the living, which we, think we talked about that last episode quite a bit. So really, for the most part, the Black Cat and strives merely just to keep the dead at bay, right? Uh, they're just trying to protect their borders. But from time to time, uh, it's known that young warriors mount raids against the province of Dorsh in the Blood Kingdom. They'll slaughter zombies and skeletons by the score during daylight and return across the running water you know, by, before nightfall, which is an extremely smart move. But sometimes those who fail to return... Uh, are seen again as these black armored servants of the Red Goddess. So they'll be raised and turned into something that I'll talk about later um, and and sent back to fight the other dwarves. Yeah, that right there is a plot hook for uh, GMs. Um, you know, yes. ima- imagine one of your PCs falling and you see them again the next day uh, as as an undead fighter or, or uh, uh, an NPC compatriot uh, doing the same thing, or there's a rescue mission to go into uh, Doresh and, uh, and, and reclaim uh, some of your fallen fighters who have been reanimated as undead soldiers uh, only to bring, only to bring them back, you know, to try to uh, reanimate them as, as living human beings, you know? So, yeah. you know, you, you can also, you can pull in a whole bunch of walking dead creepiness, uh, you know, into, uh, into that type of hook yeah and uh and and this is where you know fighting undead is hard definitely you know use these as opportunities you know even though it's not in the book uh you know use these as opportunities to uh uh, to uh, really expose your players uh to things that they have probably never played against uh ever in their uh, rpg career yeah, and I mean, and, and throw some emotion in there, right? Not only yeah. like might it be a, a, a fallen player a character, right? Mm-hmm. But let's say there's NPCs with you too. There's doors with you that are that are going over, and you're with them. Uh, and you know, one of the dwarves' brother or father or mother is is there as an undead attacking you guys, and yeah. he asked, you know, 
that that like do i kill him do i not like how how does he react how do you react how does he react to you if you try to kill them i mean there's so much cool stuff you can do with it so play it up yeah yeah you know it could be a background element of uh, any of your characters any of your uh, dm pcs you know as well you know so yeah. fun fun times there so Grisel's large human and goblin population uh, dates from times before uh, Grisel was a canton. Uh, those were the times when it was ruled as part of the Grand Duchy of Dornig uh, by the Elfmark members of House Hirsch Damig. And in Midgard, remember, Elfmark are, are um, half-elves. Half elves. Then the dwarves took over this territory uh, to prevent it from falling into the hands of then Prince Lucian of Morgau, uh, who is now the king. Uh, of the greater duchy of Morgau. And so in the years and the centuries since, the Elfmark nobles of the Grand Duchy, and here is the longest name I've ever seen in, uh, printed in a Midgard book. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it is the Elfmark nobles of the Grand Duchy and the Apiratrix, Re Re Regia, Moonthorn, Cathania, Realm, Van Dornig. That's the well whole done. name. <laughs> well and, done, uh, sir. Yeah, and she stated that they do not acknowledge this claim. And this argument has uh, been the source of repeated border skirmishes between Greisel and the Grand Duchy. So at the moment, the Grand Duchy has their own stuff to deal with. So they've put any claim uh, that Greisel belongs, uh, Greisel is their territory, aside for now. Uh, the Imperatrix, you know, who's the ruler, super long name, kind of like Percival. Uh, on um, yeah, yeah, critical yeah. role, I, I think yeah. his name is longer, you know, than that. But uh, it might that, be. that was a mouthful. I had to practice that. So, so that was good. Uh, you do both. So, Grisel is led by a super tough dwarf called Inzali Hackle. Uh, he is the dwarf lord of the halls of Grisel and the defender of the north. You know that is his title. Uh, so, he recently agreed to join the Argentine alliance with Zobek and the Madgar Kingdom vowing to stand shoulder to shoulder with its allies against the threat posed by the vampire King Lucian across the border to the east. And so this canton stands firm against the undead invaders coming over the mountains from the Blood Kingdom. Now, there is a, uh, a set of special forces in Greisel. Uh, they are called the Grave Slayers. And uh, they are this elite group of undead slain warriors and pious servant of Kors, who conduct frequent daylight raids into the Grisel marches to battle the skeletons and zombies and ghouls of, uh, of the Blood Kingdom, you know, both in the mountains and beyond in the infamous zombie woods of Zwargau. Now, there, there, there is a bad side to this. You know, any, any of the Grave Slayers who fail to return to the Canton by nightfall are sometimes seen again as those black armored foot shoulders that uh, Joe mentioned earlier. Use that hook, man. Like yeah. the living coming back as the dead and being something you have to deal with, whether it's to kill them or save them or, you know, at that emotional level uh, is, is just such a powerful storytelling device. So, you know, use it. Yeah. So tell us about the hall itself, Joe. Well, so the hall of Gristle is, is actually... <laughs> It's not really said, but it's probably, probably the capital of the Catan, even though the lore doesn't explicitly call that out. Uh, but it's an impressive above ground fortress, right? It's built in the side of a mountain. Uh, it has a dozen or so subterranean levels, which hold 
armories, vaults, storerooms, mines. All this is accessible like this great central staircase. When visitors come to the hall, uh, they're allowed to visit the upper levels, uh, but the floors below uh, ground are, are restricted to the citizens. A village uh, of about 20 wooden houses or so uh, lies uh, kind of just outside in the in the kind of the shadow of the halls. Uh, and that's home to dwarves who make a living from herding goats, uh, sheep, uh, making, you know, that, and they make the, the Catton's kind of famous nutty cheese. Um, so that's all kind of like what you'll see as you approach, right? You'll come to this small, these huts in this village and come to the, the fortress itself. And as you approach the fortress, it's, it's an impressive sight. You have these two giant stone statues of these legendary dwarven heroes that flank the entrance of the hall. You have uh, Yalric Coppersmelt. It was this stern-faced male warrior uh, clad in plate armor, uh, and he stands on the left uh, side of the gate, uh, and he has this big war hammer resting between his feet. And then you have uh, uh, Delenya Herzak, a, which is a female paladin. Uh, she's wearing an ornate helmet and bearing a, a shield emblazoned with the symbol of the sun god uh, standing to the right. Uh, and she's holding out a battle axe aloft. And I kind of get very, uh, uh, what's the city uh, from from World of Warcraft, right? <laughs> like how when you approach the the city, they have all the statues of all the heroes. I kind yeah. of get that vibe from this, right? Yeah. Um, but between those two statues is this huge door uh, that generally is going to stand open uh, to the stronghold and into the Great Hall, which is this vast public space with uh, high vaulted ceilings that are kind of supported by these big pillars and inscribed with hundreds of names, which all these names are actually this huge list of dwarves who have died in the battle with uh, the undead enemies. So uh, this hall is all bustling with activity, uh, merchants, traders, heavily armed soldiers, paladins, priests, all coming and going. And though uh, many of Midgard's races are going to be represented in the Raid Hall, it's going to be a majority uh, of the dwarves that are, you know, that are going to be there. So really cool vibe uh, to get into this bustling dwarven marketplace fortress thing. It, it's just, it's such a cool, unique location that you can really have some fun with. Um, and the hall basically leads to all the various shops and other established establishments, uh, though, through these large arches, uh, including the, there's a place called the, the Dented Tankard, which is a tavern popular with military patrols returning from duty. And there's another called uh, the Cunning Shield Maiden, which is an inn that's patronized by uh, merchants and other travelers. So that's probably a place where if your party's not dwarven, they'll probably end up. But uh, both offer the, that those you know traditional no-frill dwarven hospitality, good beer, good prices kind of deal, right? So like uh, Clay was saying earlier, this is another place where uh, your party can spend multiple sessions just in the hall, uh, following up leads, exploring, socializing, shopping, gathering information, all basically to help prepare for that next leg of the journey. So this might be one of those times where there's it's going to be a couple of really fun sessions with no combat. Uh, you know, maybe there'll be a bar fight or something like that. You can always throw some bar fights in. It's always good. But uh, this is uh, this is a cool area where maybe you can utilize some resources available uh from other places besides cobalt press right uh i'm a big fan of nord games has a lot of cool stuff uh there's stuff from dm's guild and i actually grabbed this one 
uh, because I think this is actually a great one for this particular location is uh, there's remarkable shops and there is remarkable ants. And these are yeah. both books from Laura Smith, which uh, you can really use to flesh out some of your shops and inns and places your players might hang out because, you know, not everything is flushed out in the book. So using resources like this can really just add that extra la layer of flavor uh, to a location like this. And like I said, this is, this is such a cool location to hang out and do stuff in. This is, this is Dwarven. This is the Dwarves version of Zobak in my opinion, right? It's, it's just a cool, cool place to hang out and, and have a few sessions. I mean, you, you played through the campaign. Uh, yeah. Like how, how do you use this area? Dwarves are small in stature, but they do everything on a big scale. So when you're describing the hall, it's it's a massive, spacious hallway, massively high ceilings, huge chandeliers, you know, lit with fire to uh, light light the the area. You know that central staircase. It's not just some tiny little thing. You can march an yeah, army no. up and down, uh, you know, the, those stairways. You know, down to the forges and up to the higher levels of the, uh, of the uh, hall itself. So yeah, think big, you know, if, if you watch the, uh, uh, first, uh, movie of Lord of the Rings, you know, the mines of Moria, you know, you saw big, big spaces, you know, so yeah, big space. So, so, so that is pretty much characteristic in the lore of, of dwarves themselves, you know, small in stature, but they do everything, uh, at, at a big scale. And again, yeah, you know, these, yeah, these inns and taverns are the place where a lot of fun can happen. A lot of, you know, potential socializing, information gathering, stage a, a, a fist fight or something, you know, or a pit fight. The dwarves are going at each other or or human versus dwarves or human versus trollkin or or, or or dwarf versus trollkin. You know, that that's a place where, you know, you can kind of you know, ha have some fun and get your PCs involved to make a little money and, and, and do some combat uh, without weapons, some hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat, uh, yeah, you know, I, in, in the fighting yeah. pits. Or gambling, right? I mean, gambling, gambling games. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, doors are into all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, maybe there's some kind of like, you know, uh, goat races or something, whatever. It'll come up with something fun, man. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a dwarven city make it cool i mean it's already cool but there's so much cool stuff to do with it so take advantage uh and like i said check out dm's go check out laura smith check out nord they make some really really cool stuff that you can throw uh in there and, and flesh out some areas and just make them you know give them some more depth right yeah and uh you know i'd also suggest your players take advantage of, of joining some of the raids into dorish right you can use this as kind of like a means of getting in uh getting more information about the vampire kingdom uh, and just to practice fighting someone dead, they kind of get that exposure. Uh, this is a good opportunity to have those fallen player characters or NPCs or whatever that, that died earlier coming back as undead as well, uh, like we talked about earlier. So, uh, but there's a there's a great encounter actually in Empire Rules, but I'd suggest adding additional counters with you know intelligent undead and like other critters, perhaps establishing kind of a, a recurring antagonist to your campaign. This would be all good time to kind of start doing that. And there's a, there's a table in Empire of Ghouls on page 79 that kind of includes a good mix of, of some encounters and things like that. So all well worth, you know, looking into and doing. And, and this is this is the time to kind of 
make Empire Rules your own. This is a great opportunity to go off script and really own it and fit it to your group and your table. Yeah. And remember, uh, between Greisel and Zobek is hundreds of miles. You know, so mm-hmm. by the time your PCs make it to the Hall of Greisel, uh, their resources are going to be tapped out. Yeah. So uh, this is probably one of their uh, only opportunities between Zobek and, and Greisel to uh, to stock up, you know, before they uh, hit the road again. Yeah, so definitely a good shopping session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there are some other great complications found in some older Cobalt Press publication. It's called the Iron Gazetteer. You can easily take the stuff out of there and adjust it uh, for 5e. The book also describes, you know, some hazards and terrain features, uh, some magical locations and environmental rules that any GM can use to complicate the lives of, of player characters in the areas where the adventure is set in or... Uh, beneath the mountain or uh, in the mountains themselves. Don't forget that your PCs are going to be in a very high altitude environment. And the lack of oxygen at mountain altitudes can take their toll on creatures that aren't used to altitude, uh, causing something like uh, altitude fatigue. Uh, And then dizziness, uh, the nausea, headaches that come uh, with the uh, mountains uh, sickness. And, and you game masters can determine the altitude that your players are at. You know, the, the mountains are tall. You know, they're anywhere from a, a thousand feet at, at its lowest to 22,000 uh, feet in, in the air. And, and so really you guys could decide uh, what the altitude uh, is uh, for your PCs because the book doesn't tell you, you know, they, the book leaves that up to you. And it, that is a great way to add a challenging dimension for your PCs whenever they're in the Iron Crags or any mountainous area. So, you know, dwarves of the Iron Crags, frost giants, other mountain dwelling creatures are considered acclimatized to high altitudes. And cre- also creatures that don't breathe, you know, such as undead or constructs, you know, they're completely uh, immune to the effects of altitude. An example, you know, that I kind of uh, adapted from from the Iron Gazetteer is uh, for every eight hours spent between 7,000 feet and 15,000 feet, um, have your players roll a reasonably challenged con or survival check. Um, If they fail, perhaps they lose a couple of points off their con score, gain a level of exhaustion, or their max hit points equal their their character level until they acclimatize. so, you know, you're, you're simulating uh, the fatigue brought on by a combination of exertion and lack of oxygen. Um, a lot of players don't like their stats, you know, jacked up with. Legitimately uh, acclimatizing to a uh, mountainous, uh, high mountain al- altitude is about a month. So the DMG does offer mechanics on high altitude, and, and I'm going to quote from the uh, DMG. Uh, it says, traveling at altitudes of 10,000 feet or higher above sea level is taxing for creatures that need to breathe air because of reduced amount of oxygen in the air. So each hour a creature spends traveling at high altitude uh, counts as two hours for the purpose of determining how long that creature can travel. Breathing creatures can become acclimatized to the high altitude by spending 30 days or more at this elevation. And and breathing creatures can't become acclimatized to elevations above 20,000 feet unless they are native to uh, such environments. So mountain doors, for sure, you can consider them, you know, acclimatized right off the bat. 
Now, in the PHB, the player's handbook, a creature can travel eight hours a day normally, and more is a forced march, which requires a con save after each hour beyond eight, uh, with a DC of 10 plus one for each hour uh, past eight, with a failure adding a point of exhaustion. So at high altitude, you can take that stuff and kind of have it. So you'll you'll travel, you have the ability to travel for four hours and every hour beyond that is counts as two for the DC. So it's right. 10 plus two. And so an eight hour travel day would be four normal hours. So DC 12 at five hours, a DC 14 at six hours, a DC 16 at seven, a DC 18 yep. at eight hours. I also found some uh, decent homebrew rules in a blog called Rendar's DM Resources, and it's titled Mountain Travel. And I'll put a link down in the uh, uh, description notes for you to take a look at that. And you can look at that and, and take that information and, and make it your own, you know, as your PCs are in the iron crags. But definitely yeah. don't ignore um, altitude sickness in your games. And so if you're asking, you know, what's the point of all this? All I'm suggesting is that you use the environment to increase the challenge for your PCs. No character should have the same stamina at high altitudes as they would at sea level. And the environments can be just as hostile as any, any foe. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you were playing in the jungles, right, the, the heat and humidity in plate mail would yeah. affect you. So that high altitude should affect you as well. Right. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. And it's it's a good extra challenge. And then, uh, you know, that, to go back a little bit there, you had mentioned the uh, Iron Gazetteer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of great older Cobalt Press resources, right, from Pathfinder. And then there's also a, a Pathfinder one called Dwarves of the Iron Crag, which would yeah. be a useful one as well. So make sure you, yeah, take, take a look at some of the older stuff. Most of it, if it's not on Cobalt Press's site, it's also on uh, DriveThruRPG. Um, and you can, you know, grab those PDFs pretty cheap and, and make some good use of them in these games because there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, Co Cobalt Quarterly is also uh, a, oh, a great yeah, stuff. That. Uh, that's how, you know, Open Press, you know, Cobalt Press uh, started was uh, with started, that publication. Yeah. And uh, there's just yep, so yep. much good stuff in there. It's all ripe for uh, adapting into your own adventures for sure. Yeah. So yeah, definitely get on uh, drive. I I don't know if Cobalt quarterlies are available on uh, on Cobalt site, but I'm pretty sure they're on drive through. So either way, take a look at both those sites. Grab some of the older material. Uh, there's so much good stuff. So yeah. much good material. And we'll talk about some of that material as we go through. You know, our our podcast here, and whenever we see an opportunity that one of those books is is useful, we'll mention it. As we leave Gristle, two days travel from Gristle is the Black Fortress. We can see this on the map as well. So this, if you follow the road north, uh, this is the next stop along the road. And this kind of keeps the Canton safe from Dorning to the north and from the the Blood Kingdom province uh, of uh, Krakowar, which is to the northeast. But this is this thing was built to hold the line. The Black Fortress is basically a training ground for Gristle's paladins, of course. Here, it, it's scouts basically watch for Darakul and uh, riders from uh, Gybik, uh mm -hmm. that are probing the defenses. So again, if you if you look at the map here, you'll see Gy like Gybik is kind of the next major settlement up north. So this this is their border. This thing this this is what holds the line. This is what stops troops from marching south. And I believe, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Clay, but 
it's it's kind of like a it, it protects a pass, doesn't it? Like you can't just march around it. It it protects a pass. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like uh, in in Game of Thrones, there was the, at the neck there, there was that swamp, and there was the the castle there that they mm-hmm. kind of protected. You had to pass through it to march south, so or or to march north to the north. It's kind of like one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but not not a whole lot is really written about the location to either. So uh, the fortress is is basically commanded by a guy named Jaro Whitebeard. He's a this longtime mercenary turned general late in life. Uh, and uh, the troops there are kept in basically fighting uh, condition, trimmed by uh, occasional raids toward uh, Gaibik. Uh, Commander Jaro is currently dealing with a large number of uh, uh, Krovokian refugees. Uh, he finds it kind of hard to turn them away. But having thousands of them on his road and, and building human villages in Gristle is not really a, a solution either. So the human refugee issue has been uh, raised at uh, several dwarf moots uh, without a, a satisfying solution. So that's another story hook, another thing your players might have to deal with and run into and talk about. Um, but as written, uh, the, the location is uh, kind of an information stop. Uh, but there's more you can add, right? Uh, while your PCs are there, you could throw in a, a festival from uh, Warlock Grimoire 1, uh, the gold uh, the gold miner fair. So this is kind of a cool one, right? There's like these vast treasures, including bars of pure gold, tiny miniatures and, uh, and mithril and gemstones are found you know, at the fair. Uh, and the fair itself is like this celebration of mining and jewelry and precious metals in all forms. Uh, so it's perfect dwarven festival. Uh, it's held perhaps uh, appropriately uh, in the Black Fortress, uh, which asks all of its visitors uh, a small donation called the Coin of Course. These funds both help the, uh, the Gristle Dwarves pay their uh, rigorously huge costs for steel and soldiers that are said to you know, curry favor with the Sun God, which are you know, basically beloved by them. The festival itself, um, like I said, it takes place in the fortress halls, uh, and it's it, it is really well guarded. Those who come and go are always closely watched uh, to avoid any kind of unfortunate theft. Uh, the goldsmiths and mithril smiths and silversmiths and jewelers uh, of the cantons all bring their best wares to this fair, and the miners themselves come to see that uh, what works are made from the metal they they you know basically dug up and won from the depths of the earth. So that is something really cool you can do with it. Uh, if you're looking to uh, flesh out the location a little bit more and uh, add something to it, one thing I love to use uh, in Midgard, because if you look at like the Midgard world map in general, there's a lot of settlements all over the place, towns and cities and stuff. And some of them have almost nothing written about them. There's two books that I would recommend. Uh, one is the city and town builder that Cobalt Press recently released mm-hmm. that can help you flush out those settlements. And the other is uh, Spectacular Settlements from Nord, which is one of my favorites that can help you, again, kind of flush out and put some more uh, things and purpose to these locations. So anytime you come across a location in Midgard, uh, the city and town builder from Cobalt Press or this book can uh, definitely help to, to, to breathe some life into a location that really doesn't have a lot written about it so now clay when you did uh when you did yours did you use the gold miners fair yeah yeah um i i i didn't want them to just pass through the the black fortress yeah you know i want, wanted to keep them there 
And and the, the other uh, element that I used was uh, because of all the refugees that were settling in the area, you know, which caused a lot of uh, uh, problems for Jaro, um, you know, you, you're essentially, you know, creating a grocery store for the uh, undead uh, across the border. There's some hooks where there's just constant raids on the uh, human population who, who's taken for food. Uh, back into the uh, vampire kingdom or uh, captured by the uh, blood sisters and sacrificed uh, to the goddess uh, Marina. I really played that up. And and I also played the Black Fortress is, and and, and as part of the lore, it is out in the middle of nowhere. It, it is a fortress that stands on its own. Uh, it has to defend itself. Um, any help to the Black Fort- Fortress is at least two days away. Uh, south of them. They're straddling like two borders. You know, they got the that Dornig in the north and they got the greater duchy of Morgau uh, to the uh, west. You know, so th- this is, you know, you mentioned Game of Thrones. It's also that big ice wall. You know, you can think of, of this as yeah. that really remote uh, location. And uh, they are the <laughs> proverbial Gandalf. You know, you shall not pass. Not uh, pass we, yeah. we will we will fight uh, to to the end. Uh, to uh, protect our our canton. Yeah, and I would suggest um, not forgetting dwarven engineering and dwarven ingenuity here, right? Especially if 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 it's the way I picture it, it might not be, but this is how I would set it up: is that it's it's in a pass, so yeah. it's protecting a pass that you have. You know, there's no going around it. So you have these rock walls on either side, these cliffs. You know, boulder traps, falling traps, things like that. Maybe if the gates are breached, they have a device up above it that they can open up as a last resort and boulders, tons of boulders fall down in front of the gate and block the gate as a last resort um, to prevent the undead from getting through. You leave anybody on the outside fighting out front or any humans or anything that need to get, they wouldn't be able to get in, but it's kind of one of those last resort things, right? So think about dwarven engineering and dwarven ingenuity and how they might defend a fortress like this and add some of that in because there's a lot of cool stuff that could happen there as well yeah yeah fun times can't go wrong with absolutely nope never go wrong with dwarves are cool man i love dwarves there's i I, first i think i've only played a dwarf once in all of D D, and yet they are still my favorite race because they're just so cool yeah but well, I think that kind of wraps us up for this portion of Empire of the Ghouls, which we'll continue in our next episode. But we are very, very happy to say we're bringing back Creature Showcase this week. So we've taken a, a break from Creature Showcase because we were trying to get through all the stuff on Zobac and just trying to get caught up and, and get you guys some good information out there. But we we got some creatures ready for you today. So with that said, Clay, tell me what you got. Yeah. So... We're in the cantons, so I might as well uh, uh, talk about uh, dwarves. And you remember that special forces that I mentioned uh, earlier, the Grave Slayer? There's actually yep. a stat block for a Grave Slayer in the Creature Codec on page 400. Now, in the Empire of the Ghouls campaign, you have two uh, NPCs, Havard Glimmerstone and Brogan Bonebasher. And they are both Grave Slayers in the Black Canton of, of Greisel. The dwarves battle skeletons and zombies of Morgau. Uh, who are raiding across the river into the mountains and and beyond in the infamous zombie wood. Now, a few members of this tradition also operate out of Wolfmark, which is the country that is directly north of the uh, Greater Duchy of uh, Morgau. 
And uh, these guys are ferocious, uh, but they are extraordinarily pious. And as we mentioned earlier, they are servants of the sun god, and uh, they are the elite special forces group of undead slain warriors. Uh, they are trained and drilled from an early age in the art of battle, and these dwarves are molded into fierce fighters against the skeletons, zombies, and worse creatures that threaten their mountain homeland. And although they're not full paladins, as we mentioned earlier, these grave slayers have a blessing from the sun god, Kors, that grant them the ability to channel holy power through their weapons and ensure that the undead they slay do not rise up again. Now, uh, we've talked about this hook before uh, earlier in the uh, episode. Uh, the bodies of any fallen comrade have to be carried back home whenever possible to ensure they do not line up against the dwarves as undead opponents in the future. Uh, those left behind can become corrupted grave slayers, uh, reanimated by necromancers of the Blood Kingdom who use dark rituals to corrupt its soul and then enlist them to fight against their former comrades. A corrupted grave slayer's type changes from humanoid to undead, and it inflicts extra necrotic damage rather than the radiant damage that you see in the uh, uh, stat box. And uh, also, uh, a, a corrupted grave slayer uh, loses their ability uh, to uh, uh, turn undead. In the uh, book itself, uh, they are, are CR4 uh, NPCs. I tend to buff them up as, as much as I can, depending on, on the situation. Uh, but they're tough. They uh, have uh, uh, 18 AC. They wear heavy plate armor. Uh, they have a good amount of hit points. You know, the average is 112. If you use the uh, top end of the formula, you can be, you know, nearing, you know, 200 hit points. They are super strong. The dwarves, you know, have the, uh, you know, resistance to poison. But these Grave Slayers also have resistance to uh, necrotic damage, uh, which is, uh, is typical of the type of damage that uh, undead deal. They have uh, dark vision, so they can see just fine uh, in the dark at night, underground. And uh, they are just badasses. They have this what's called a blessed battle axe. And it uh, not only does, you know, your standard battle axe uh, damage, you know, when you're using it one-handed or two-handed, but uh, if the target is undead, uh, it'll also take an extra uh, bit of radiant damage uh, along with it, which, you know, a lot of undead creatures, you know, have that uh, uh, vulnerability to radiant damage. They're not paladins, but they do have the uh, uh, turn undead feature that they can use an, as an action. And, uh, you know, they also have this cool reaction called Brave Sacrifice. So uh, when an ally within five feet of a Grave Slayer is the target of an attack of a, another creature, you know, the Grave Slayer can swap places with their ally and become that target instead. So just imagine them just like pushing you out of the way to uh, take the uh, blow uh, instead of uh, it landing on you. I usually don't um, pay too much attention to alignment, uh, but it, in this case, I, I, I really do play up their uh, non-evil alignments, you know, that they, they have a code uh, they, uh, you know, they're not goody goodies, uh, but they have a code that they uh, stick to under every circumstance possible. So take the time to, uh, you know, scale, scale up this NPC. You may need uh, something to get your players out of a tough spot. Now, this can be an opportunity where these grave slayers kind of come out of the, uh, out from nowhere and help, uh, uh save the day uh, with your PCs.
Absolutely. Yeah. It's a good, a good way to do it. Right. Just, I, I mean, yeah, you know, sometimes you, you, you know, you want to give them a challenge where they could die, but other times it's like, Oh crap, I just kind of messed up. So like these guys are just like, kind of like you're they're they're out on patrols and they just happen to be there at the right time and save the day. Kind of like, uh, let's use our Lord of the Rings analogy again. And when, uh, the riders of Rohan came out of nowhere and, and, you know, attacked the orcs, right. And, and the hobbits were able to get away. It's kind of one of those situations. So they'll be out there and, and, and might be able to just help out when need be. Right. Yeah. But don't, don't forget you have the corrupted grave slayers. These are the undead versions of the grave, sl- grave slayers who have fallen, you know, so make sure if, um, if you have grave slayers as part of your combat encounter, Throw in a couple of their uh, their their former comrades, you know, their dead comrades who have been reanimated to uh, go to war against the uh, the Grisel yep. Canton. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. What do you have, Joe? Well, you know, I feel like I have a great segue, uh, Monster here, because we we've talked a bit about some of this today, right? Yeah. Um, we you just mentioned the corrupted grave slayers, and I talked. We talked both talked earlier about how sometimes uh, fallen. Uh, dwarves might come back in this black armor. Well, it's not just grave slayers that go to raid the undead of Dorsh. Paladins and clerics and other young dwarves kind of looking to prove themselves may venture into the Blood Kingdom to raid the undead. And uh, as Clay said, not all return. Sometimes the dead are left behind and some may return as corrupted grave slayers, but some come back as something even worse. Dwarven paladins and other would-be heroes who made a uh, holy war on the undead uh, and were lost rise as ghost dwarves and march by night, sent back to slay those who originally sent them. Uh, the face of a ghost dwarf stares out from its black helm with a look of sheer terror, desperate and unguarded enough to horrify most dwarves. The echoes of their last words of oaths in vain and pleading with their gods fill the air around them in this chilling whisper. Uh, more powerful uh, undead will take great pleasure in sending these shades back uh, against their grieving kin. The ghost doors themselves will often even lead uh, whites and other lesser undead into battle. And... They are built for that. So the the ghost dwarves, uh, you can find these also in Creature Codex on page 171. You'll find that these are, are like I said, this is more of a ghost. We talk about black armor, but these are uh, incorporeal. So they actually do have uh, incorporeal movement, which you see on a lot of ghost type things where they can move through objects and stuff like that. And they also are vulnerable to sunlight. They have sunlight sensitivity. So if there is sunlight, which there rarely is in that region, but they would have disadvantage in attack rolls as well as, uh, you know, wisdom checks and stuff like that. More importantly, though, they have this aura of defiance. Um, and this is what makes them really great in a horde of undead because the ghost dwarf and any undead within 10 feet of it have advantage on saving throws against effects to turn undead. So when those Graveslayers show up, and they try to turn undead, everybody, you know, any creature that's near one of these guys is going to have advantage on that saving throw. So that makes them an extra fearsome kind of bat- enemy to have on the battlefield. The other thing that these guys have is uh, this, they have, they have ethereal sight and they also have etherless. So they can basically bounce back and forth between the ethereal plane and the material plane. And two things happen here. One, when they're in the ethereal plane, uh, they can see into the material plane, but you can also see them 
but you can't interact with them. And same thing when they're on the material plane, if anybody, if you're in the ethereal plane, you would be able to see them there, but not interact. So there's like this visage of them still there, but they can see from one plane to another as well. So they, they'll bounce back and forth between the planes and move around the battlefield. And it, it can be a real difficult thing to fight them. As far as their attacks and stuff, now, they are not strong. They are, like, four strength, uh, ten con. Uh, they do have some decent decks. And then they they have, like, ten intelligence, fourteen wisdom, fifteen charisma. Uh, they're averaging around 81 hit points. But, again, if you max it out, it can be up to uh, about 144 hit points. And then they sit there with uh, 14 armor. There are CR6, uh, again... This might be an opportunity to buff them if your party's stronger or you want to do you know, a little bit more with them. You can always buff their AC up a little, buff their HP up a little, uh, but their attacks are pretty solid. So they get multi-attack and it's a, it's a three attack deal. So they have a ghostly axe, right? So this is either melee or ranged. Uh, when they hit with this thing, uh, it's doing uh, like you know 1d6 plus two slashing damage and then mm-hmm. 2d8 necrotic damage. Uh, but what's cool is if they throw it, then like a new one appears in their hand right away. Like wow. as soon as they throw it, they, a new one just materializes in their hand. So that's kind of cool. And then they have this head of the grave attack, which in multi-attack, they can only use this one once uh, per turn. So when it hits, it does 18 uh, necrotic damage or 48. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the target has to make a DC 15 con save or its HP maximum is uh, reduced by the amount of damage it's taken. Right. So, we see this kind of ability all the time uh, in Undead. If, if you get reduced to zero from this, you're dead. Fortunately, the reduction only lasts until you finish uh, a long rest. You don't need a greater restoration on it. A restoration would probably restore you before a rest, but a long rest will, will do the trick for you on this one. So that's at least a little bit of relief. Now, again, if you were to bump them up and want to make them harder, require a greater restoration to fix it. I mean, you can totally do that. His last ability is a recharge ability. So it recharges on five and six. It's called Prayers uh, Unanswered. And th- w- in my description, I mentioned how the their, the dwarves' final whispers and oaths and pleads kind of, you know, are in the air around it in this, this haunted fashion. Well, that's actually an ability. So uh, the ghost dwarf emits a constant whisper consisting of prayers, pleading, cursing, and cryptic phrases. The volume of the whispering intermittently increases, and those within 30 feet of the ghost dwarf that can hear it must succeed in a DC 15 wisdom saving throw or become frightened for one minute. A creature can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of his turns and the effect on success. So just imagine, like, you're fighting this thing, and you hear this constant just, like, you can hear the whispers, and every now and then when it recharges, you know, it goes off, and it, it becomes like this, this loud, frightening, ghostly sound. Save, save or run. <laughs> so I love the flavor of these things. Yeah. And now if, if you look at the, the art of them, it looks like this like big black metal armored thing and this ghostly face encased in it. And, and almost, it, it doesn't look like someone wearing armor. It looks more like a battle suit. I love these. I think that this is a, a creature that you're definitely going to encounter in this campaign because that's what happens to those who fall. I mean, this is what they become. Definitely check it out uh, in Creature Codex because it's one you almost have to use in Empire of Ghouls. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't like to criticize uh, Cobalt Press's stuff too much, but w- when you look at the illustration versus the stat block itself, 
it's almost as if they're two different creatures. It looks like a big iron golem. So it's almost like he has a tank around him. Yeah. And, and, and the shade itself is, is imprisoned in that suit, you know, of armor. I've looked at this, you know, a couple of times. It's, it's a great, it's a great creature. You know, don't get me wrong. When, when I play a ghost, ghost dwarf as written, I'll usually uh, show an image of a shade, just like this ethereal creature, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, But, you know, if I, but if I want to like play a greater ghost dwarf, you know, I, I'll combine a lot of its actions with uh, Iron Golem or something like that, you know, to kind of uh, buff buff them up a little bit. But it, yeah. it's, a, it's a great NPC. Don't get me wrong. If you want to play this uh, creature, you know, in its iron suit, maybe consider, um, you know, changing the stats a little bit. You're the GM. Do what you want with the creatures. You're not going to break yeah. D&D if you, if you change up a stat box. <gasps> you but, broke Dungeons and yeah. Dragons. <laughs> How dare me! But oh. you know, this is a great, great choice of NBC, Joe. I'm glad you uh, uh, yeah. showcased it. You know, and I'm gonna throw a pro tip out here for you guys. So, if you are like me and you 3D print minis, mm-hmm. and you want to make a ghost of anything, be it a dwarf or a golem type, like let's let's say you like this art, where you're like, oh, I want to make him a ghost golem. Print it in transparent and then just use some blue ink and stain it blue. And suddenly it's a ghost. Any mini you can 3D print can be a ghost if you print it transparent and stain it like blue or green or whatever color you want. Instant ghost every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's a pretty good tip. Yeah. yeah I did it for uh, a Cobalt Press adventure that I ran at Gen Con a couple of years ago. I needed this this uh, uh, like undead uh, uh, pharaoh looking guy for uh, you know a Southlands thing. Right. And I just, I had this cool pharaoh looking mini and I just printed him transparent, stained him blue and he was a ghost. There you go. Done, done, done. So, yep. Pro tip. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. In our next show, we're going to get into the Grand Duchy of Dornig, uh, the former electoral kingdom of Krakova, also the court in exile. And we'll talk about, you know, what Krakova is, is, is like, you know, in the current uh, timeline. We're also going to talk about Fey Roads, also known as Shadow Roads. We're also going to wrap that episode in the uh, Tomerian Forest, uh, which is in the uh, northeastern part of, uh, of Dorig. So, so, yikes, that's a lot of locations, you know, but we'll give it a go. Um, Joe, you know, how can people reach you? Well, uh, you can always find me uh, at GM Toolbox on YouTube and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram. I've taken a little bit of break from my YouTube stuff lately, but uh, still follow me. I will be back. I've just been super busy, uh, so I will get back to it shortly. So don't think uh, don't think I've given up on that. Uh, you can also grab me over on Twitter at GM Toolbox. And of course, you can always find me on the Midgard Adventures Discord server at GM Toolbox. Clay, how about you? Yeah, you can reach me on the Midgard Adventures Discord uh, and also on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Clayton Thompson, and that's Thompson spelled without a P. But the uh, best place to reach us both is the Midgard Adventures Discord server. And that is an independent fan-based cooperative group that is affiliated with Cobalt Press. Uh, there we talk lore, we share tips and tricks, we answer questions, and we offer organized play games, both online and IRL. So our community is open to everyone, particularly those new to Midgard and role-playing games in general. And then we also, for this show, we have dedicated channels for that Midgard show on the server where you can post a comment and talk about the content below. But at least come hang out with us, you know, lurk around the channels. Uh, The 
Kobolds uh, all uh, post uh, on the uh, Discord server, you know, particularly the designers in the adventure channels. So there's an invitation uh, link uh, below in the description notes. Check us out. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, make sure you're commenting, leave us feedback. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, you know, we're doing this entire uh, Empire Ghouls because one of one of our listeners suggested it. So uh, let us know what you want to hear on that Midgard show. And, you know, we'll be happy to cover it. I and mean, our ultimate goal is to get through all of it, but it's never ending. So, you know, like I said, comment, leave us reviews, let us know what you think. Um, make sure that if you like our show, click the like button, subscribe to our channel, and make sure you spread the word about that Midgard show. We're on all the major podcast platforms as well. So please subscribe there, leave your comments, you leave your five-star reviews, all of that good stuff. We really, really appreciate it, guys. So that's it for today. And remember, as Wolfgang Barr says, strip it for parts and make it your own. Thank you for joining us. Take care, everyone. Peace. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>